The stages of rehabilitation can be used to inform survivors, family, friends, and communities after challenging events. The focus and language is different depending upon each group, but the pathway is the same. I want to identify and provide a brief description of the stages, not as a means of advice, but to provide insights and ideas gained by stories of individuals who experience tough and challenging events. Each guest is in a specific stage, so listen, see if you can identify what they did and are doing to move forward in their healing and recovery process. Stage four, acceptance and adaptation for now. Take a breath. Take time to think about how far you've come. What are the physical, emotional, and behavioral adjustments you made or adapted to? You can still move forward, but for now, stop. Think and relax for a while. You've been through a lot. Take time to process and then decide on your next best steps. In winter of 2013, I was working my cubicle job selling software for a company in Roseville. Uh, I was making my six figures. I was well off compared to a lot of my friends in life. I was pretty much at the prime of my life, you know, 32, and doing what I wanted when I wanted back here at home. But that cubicle life, you know, working 11-hour days, 60-hour weeks, just that didn't seem to be it for me. So I made the decision to go explore the world and decided on Southeast Asia as my destination. I had a friend that just got back from there and she kind of shared her experiences and it just seemed like a place that I needed to go. And if this was gonna be a trip to kind of find myself and plot out the next step in my life. Since I was by myself with no agenda, I was literally the most independent I had ever been at any point in my life. I was doing whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted, with whoever I wanted, with nobody to be accountable to, no job, no responsibilities. Three months into that trip, uh, I was in Thailand snorkeling. It was a beautiful, gorgeous day on Phang Nong Bay. And we were kind of coming back in for that one last dive of the day. The sun was setting. You know, gorgeous, just orange fireball in the sky. As it was going down over the horizon, I jumped off the boat just like I had been doing all day. Midair, not a care in the world. And this time when I entered the water, I did not come back out the same way I came back out the rest of that day and started a new life that I never asked for. His trip to find himself and determine his future would do just that, but not in the way he thought. Today on Sliver of Hope, the podcast series on post-traumatic growth, Dr. Joyce Michael Flynn talks with Lane and Sally Edwards about stage four, acceptance and adaptation. In our series, focusing on guiding survivors towards growth after trauma through Metahab. Find out more at metahab.com. Today I have the distinct opportunity to speak with Sally Edwards and her nephew Lane Edwards. And I would like them to talk about their experience with having to do with life-changing events. And I think I'll start with Lane. Lane, why don't you tell us a little bit about your situation and your event? Of course, yes. Thank you for the opportunity of inviting me to be here today to share a little bit about my story. 
That all starts back in 2014, actually 2013. I made the decision to kind of quit my life in the cubicle and go explore the world. In January 2014, I left San Francisco Airport for a four-month vacation in Southeast Asia. Really only had a backpack on my back and no set agenda. Was heading out by myself. After three months of going through South Korea, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, just having the time of my life, doing whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted, I ended back up in Thailand exploring the islands. And during a snorkeling expedition, I took off, I took a dive off the boat to explore some of the phytoplankton during the dusk hour and didn't realize how shallow the water was. Long story short, I jumped in with all my function and did not come back out with all my function. The resulting head injury left me with a broken neck, resulting in a spinal cord injury that has left me pretty much paralyzed from the shoulders down. And that was four and a half years ago on April 17th of 2014. Sally, why don't you now chime in a little bit because you and Lane have been training partners for multiple high-level athletic activities, including Ironman activities. And when you got the phone call or you heard from Lane, what was going on with you? Well, Lane was a 32-year-old single male out um, in Thailand that I'd encourage that he take this trip, that he quit his high-paying job and get out of that cubicle and go explore the world. And I was camping when I got the phone call from his brother saying that he didn't know how serious it was. He was about to get on an airplane and fly to Bangkok because Lane had broken his neck. And there are different severities of broken necks, which I knew. And the question was, you know, can he ever function again as a, a normal human being? And will he even live through um, this? He was on a remote island, and they had to air flight him back to a hospital in Bangkok. And um, so the family, of course, all gathered together in different parts of, the, of America where we live. And... Uh, asked the question, how do we support this catastrophic accident in this young man who, you know, had this incredible future in front of him? And it was a really, really hard question to ask yourself, what's, you know, what's next? Um, Lane, when you, how long were you in Thailand? When did you get back? And what initially happened when you hit back in the States? So I was three months into my four-month vacation when this incident happened. As Aunt Sal just mentioned, I was on a remote island and had to be taken in a private jet from the island to the hospital in Bangkok where I had my MRI done and was given my initial diagnosis over there. The decision was for me to stay in Bangkok long enough for my body to stabilize and be safe enough for me to fly home. So that process took about two weeks and I was flown from Bangkok to back to San Francisco where I started this whole adventure and went straight into UCSF Medical Center where I had my surgery on my neck and spent another two weeks there 
recovering from that surgery before eventually heading about an hour south down to Santa Clara to the Santa Clara Valley Medical Center, which has a pretty well-known spinal cord yeah. injury recovery program. Yes. Mm-hmm. And my next 33 or so days was spent there doing physical therapy six days a week and kind of learning the ins and out of what this new life meant for me, how I was going to navigate the day-to-day activities, right? right. eating, showering, using the restroom, and then at the same time having that focus on trying to get back whatever was possible to get back as far as movement and functionality. Those first six months to two years, according to the medical establishment, are really the the best times to, to get as much back as possible when your brain is still trying to rewire itself and right. figure things out. That's your best shot right. to get that movement and function back is in those that initial that six, six to 24 months. Lane, Lane tell us what where what level you your spinal cord has been interrupted. What what level that is? What's your diagnosis and what level was that interrupted? Yes, yeah, so since mine was a diving accident, I had a compression on my neck. So kind of picture that soda can crushing type of a an image. So my official diagnosis is a C3 through C7 quadriplegic. But I present myself as a C4. And I want to get into a little bit more about, you know, what's going on with you now, because obviously this has been time frame. But I want to switch back to bringing in Aunt Sally here. Um, one of the things, too, is interesting to me that you said the beginning of my adventure. So that's an interesting observation to make about what you're doing now. So within that window of time, there's a lot of things that were going on, and I know Aunt Sally, I'm just going to say it, pushed you, I'm sure. So why don't you talk about that, Sally? Uh, my nephew, Lane, is the son of my uh, one of my brothers. I had three brothers, and he was always an athlete, and we rode bikes together. We ran together. We did, when he was a young, young boy, did the uh, Iron Kids Triathlon, and I was there to cheer him on, and... Um, you know, I can. We've had conversations about that was the last bike ride we did together before you, your accident, and I remember this and I remember that, and I'm sure that's really hard on Lane Edwards because those memories have to float back. That mm-hmm. I was able to walk. I, you know, now I'm restricted to this electric wheelchair, and I have been of the opinion that he can walk again. And what it's going to take to get him out of that wheelchair is going to, what, like you said, Joyce, it's going to take everybody believing in that and pushing. And I think it might take a decade. Mm-hmm. And I think we're roughly three or four years uh, since the accident. And I disagree with the medical research that he just quoted, saying the first two years are the critical years. Every single year in my book is critical. And whatever it's going to take in terms of physical therapy, Uh, psychological, nutritional, and I really compliment Lane. He has dedicated him as as his job is to get out of that wheelchair. And he, he, with help, he can get out of that wheelchair. With um, spotters, he can walk with some degree of of capacity with a 
what's it called, Lane? Uh, your I do walkers. I do canes. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And so he's spending three, sometimes five hours a day now, years and years later, because he can get out of this wheelchair. Right. As you've gone through all the therapies and whatever you can do to get things moving, and I have seen Lane standing up with assistance and moving forward, which is one of the most emotionally impressive, you know, motivating things I can see. But one of the things I want to get back into, too, is this is stage four. And in stage four, we talk a lot about acceptance and adaptation. I want Lane and Sal, I want you both to talk about what have you accepted, what have you adapted to, and what do you refuse to adapt to and say, no, I'll I'll do this for now, but this is where I want to go. So, Lane, why don't you start? Yeah, so I'll start with the kind of topic of acceptance. Quiet. You might hear a little background noise. This is Ziggy. This is Lane's dog, who has just been instrumental. I'll let Lane uh, introduce him at the very end. But yes, you hear a little background noise, and that's our friend Ziggy. So go ahead, Lane. Yeah, so back to acceptance. Uh, I think acceptance kind of comes differently to everyone involved in my world. There's how I define acceptance. There's how... My friends define acceptance. My family defines acceptance. Um, I, I don't think I'll ever accept the fact that I'm in a chair. I mean, if I walk again, that this injury happened. Uh, maybe one day, you know, who knows? We'll see. But something like this, I just don't, in my opinion, think that that true acceptance of this is my life will ever occur. With that said, it doesn't mean I can't live a totally fulfilling and somewhat normal life just doesn't mean I necessarily have to accept the fact that I'm paralyzed. So what that means for me is not letting this injury hold me back from anything. Um, perfect example, just this past weekend on my 37th birthday, I jumped out of a plane at 13,000 feet and went skydiving. Um, so just because I'm paralyzed doesn't prevent me from doing that. I still get out, I still do things. As my aunt just mentioned, I'm in the gym six days a week three to five hours a day. I'm back in school. Uh, I would love to get back into the workforce. So acceptance for me is, although I might never accept the injury as as defining me, um, acceptance for me is, hey, this is, this is the hand I've been dealt and I got to make the best of what I have. I can work as hard as I want and maybe I'll get everything back. Maybe I'll get nothing back. Not sure if that even answered your question, yes, Joyce. Yes, that that is that is beyond answering. That's perfect, and I want to bring Sally in here too. Well, I think uh, the quality of his life has really improved over the last couple of years, and uh, his uh, living situation. He now has a home that he lives in that mm. he, uh, the family has purchased. So before he was kind of at the, you know, he was renting and had. Uh, He's also gotten a really good uh, caregivers that have supported him, and, and it's taken him a while to sort through what that is looking like mm-hmm. and what that is. I've uh, been really encouraging him to go into his heart, which is the most important muscle we have, and find what his calling is. And I, um, many have said, well, maybe drug and alcohol rehab, maybe becoming a teacher, maybe he was in the business world before, maybe going back into business. 
And one of the things I think is important is that people complete things that they started. And he started college, and he hasn't finished it, and I'm going to forever until he walks, walks across the stage <laughs> nice. to get a diploma. Nice. Uh, will it continue to encourage that? You know, and, and I think I, I'm going to have you introduce, I think, Ziggy right now because I do want to talk a little bit about the adaptation part. And to preface that a little bit, um, I was able to present at a, a big conference in the U.K., and they talked about adaptive athletes. And this was a few years ago, and I love it because we always refer to them in the past as disabled athletes. But we don't do that anymore. We talk about adaptive athletes. And so when you dove out of that plane, it wasn't that you can't do things, but we find ways to adapt to make, to, to have you have those experiences. So I want you to talk about the adaptions you've made. And you can bring in Ziggy now if you want. Yeah, of course. And it's actually, this is the perfect timing for a question like this. As soon as I leave here, I'm giving a presentation at school kind of on the same topic. And in doing that research, kind of a light bulb went off in my head that all of us need adaptations in this world, whether you're disabled or not. And a good example they use as if you go into like a high-rise building, the developer of that building, if they wanted to save as much money as possible and utilize the space there, they would have created a rope from you to get from the bottom floor to the top floor, but instead they create stairs or an elevator so that people can have adaptations to make their life easier. And that's for everybody. For myself and others with a quote-unquote real disability, for lack of a better term, we just need kind of that next level of adaptations. So I have my power chair that's essentially my, my legs. It gets me anywhere. I want to go. I have my wheelchair van with the ramp that I'm fortunate enough to have a gang of drivers that will get me from point A to point B. Um, I have the adaptations that my school provides for me from note takers to extra time on tests to extra time for papers. There's really a lot of adaptations out there for individuals such as myself. And a lot of that has to do with the ADA law that was passed back in the 90s. And then I'm lucky enough to have my best buddy here, Ziggy, who I've had since February and has just been a life changer for me. There's the things he can do for me to help me gain back some of my independence, like opening doors or picking things up off the ground. But it's really the companionship, having that best friend with me, he goes everywhere with me 24-7 and it also helps get rid of kind of that stigma that a lot of us living with a disability have where the rest of the world kind of just ignores us and it's almost like we're not there. So I was in school before Ziggy and nobody really looked my way. I would just tuck myself in the corner of a classroom and not really talk to anybody. And now with Ziggy, everybody wants to say hi or can I pet your dog and kind of have that conversation. And it's almost a little bit annoying how much attention I get now. <laughs> yeah, but Ziggy's been awesome. I'm very fortunate. Came from Canine Companions for Independence. 
phenomenal organization. So um, I, I've been truly been blessed with the network of people I have, the support I've had, and and it's continuing day in and day out. Okay, I'm just sitting here a little teary-eyed with all of that because I have to say it just it means so much to me. But I want to ask Sally now, how have you adapted to your nephew's life now? Well, I think it's not just me. I think it's the entire Edwards family, and his mom has just been a champion and come through every every time there's been a need. And I think one of the things that a lot of people never address in this whole adaptation phase is how expensive these accidents are, how much money it costs to both the, the government for the support of him and the family. And MetaHab has been right there to support Lane as well. So thank you. Uh, doing fundraisers, um, uh, getting volunteers to do like Lane explained. He can't drive a car and he needs to get to different school and he needs to get there. Um, to the, the time that we've all committed to him and our busy lives to uh, support his well-being and his happiness. Because it's not real happy to go through any of the experiences he's gone through. But I think he's now, and maybe um, best nephew Lane, um, life is a lot, is a lot happier. It's, uh, I think you're in a position now, and maybe it's this you know, step four, phase four of adaptation, that you you have joy in your life and mm-hmm. and you see the positive and um, and I'm really happy for you for that and we're we're always there. I mean, until the day I die, mm-hmm. I'm always there. Yeah, that's uh, for sure. And I think I would like to just point out as we talk about the adaption adjustment and what you've learned, um, Lane's uh, sweatshirt says, stay positive. So I think that's part of the adaptation acceptance uh, message as well. So I think I'd like to finish up um, listen, just hearing from both of you, what is the most important lessons takeaway lessons. If you were sitting in front of somebody now who initially had something like this, you as a family member, Sally, obviously you, Lane, as the person who's been affected, what do you know now that you didn't know before and you'd like to share with somebody? Don't sweat the small stuff. That's a big one. I think anybody that's gone through a life-changing experience or a near-death experience just... The small things in this world that we stress out on or we worry about when at the end of the day, it's there's a lot of cliches that I've learned that I've kind of heard in the past that have really rang true to me now. You know, like blood is thicker than water. Your family will always be there for you. Um, you know, your, your real friends are the ones that stick around. Um, Money can't buy you happiness. I mean, there's all these little cliches you hear that are 100% true once you're in a position to really kind of take them in and and focus on them. And when you can't really do much for yourself or anything at all, you really get to do a lot of people watching, observe people, get to know people, get to know yourself. And um, I really try to surround myself with individuals who are positive that will bring some optimism and some joy into my life and 
there's a lot of friends I don't hang out with anymore for whatever reason. Some of it's just kind of the natural pathways of life going separate ways. And some people just, there aren't that positive influence. They're not the people I want in my life at this point. Um, so I think a big, a big takeaway again would be just not, not sweating about the small things. Um, and just kind of let life happen. Right. Be around people you love, friends, family, pets. Right. Do things you love. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's I my think, biggest takeaway. I think uh, I think the uh, major thing there too, and we talk about this a lot, is who are you surrounding yourself with? And you have to. You don't want to have this foolishness around there, but you want to have a solid like, yes, I see you progress. I've seen you do this. Oh, look at what you can do now. Oh, I didn't see that before. Now you can do it. Keep working. And you have to have that around you. So Sally, from your perspective. You know, um, I think um, I've learned I I take a lot of risk in my life, uh, risk in business, risk in athletic performance, risk in doing some of the hardest races in the world with the intention of winning. And um, I've kind of backed up a little bit and been a little more uh, careful going, well, I could have broken my neck doing that one or that one or that one, and I got by on it. Mm -hmm. So I think how it's influenced me, uh, other than I deeply love my nephew um, and care about him, is that I'm a little more cautious. Mm-hmm. So when that bus comes by me and I rode my bike 25 miles this morning and I looked at that bus, I said, I, I'm going to let the bus have the right of way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and it's, I just want to when I went to go see somebody about my situation, I remember saying to some friends when we were running, oh, I got he was this one cardiologist told me I have like a 5% chance of this happening to me again. And the people I was running with said, oh, for the Joyce, you get, you have a 5% chance of stepping out and getting hit by a bus. And I said, yes, but here's the thing. Once you've been hit by that bus, <laughs> you are looking both ways before you step out on that street. And I think that's a big thing too, that yeah. you get hit by something, you go, whoa. So, Um, I just want to deeply thank both of you because I've known you. And as soon as as the way MetaHab people do, it is always about finding purpose and giving back. And initially when I first called you both, there was just zero hesitation in your voices and with you about, yes, I'll do this. So I just can't thank you enough. Well, thank you, uh, Joyce. And... Uh, I know Lane has deep appreciation now. Absolutely, I do. That's a big one. So, Lane, before before we leave today, let me ask you, um, I know you do a lot of work to help other people um, with funding their rehabilitation. Where can people go to find out more about you, the work you do, and possibly contribute to your cause? Yeah, thanks for that opportunity. There's two main websites you can uh, navigate to. If you want to learn more about my personal story, um, that would be lovinglane.org. And then just this past year, with the help of the family, they started a nonprofit to support others living with spinal cord injuries to regain back their independence. And that is called In the Neck of Time. And that is also at intheneckoftime.org. You can make financial contributions there. You can learn more about 
spinal cord injuries. You can see some of the sponsored athletes out there. Thank you for that opportunity, Joyce. Okay, perfect. Don't miss our next podcast, Stage 5, Reintegration with Dave McGilvery, race director during the shocking Boston Marathon bombing. Learn more about post-traumatic growth through metahabilitation and about Dr. Joyce Michael Flynn by visiting metahab.com. You'll also be able to order Dr. Joyce Michael Flynn's book, Turning Tragedy into Triumph. Sliver of Hope, the podcast series on post-traumatic growth, is presented by Metahab and a production of Multipoint Content Strategies. If you'd like to contribute either your personal story or the story of someone you know, please email a brief description of your story to mystory at metahab.com. Thanks for listening. The purpose of this podcast is to provide a general discussion of the topic presented, which may or may not apply to the individual listener. It is not intended to provide and is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor, therapist, mental health professional, or other qualified medical professional. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the interviewer or guest.